Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, thanks for tuning in. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into the issue of homelessness, specifically in my community of Denver, Colorado, but I would imagine that the conversation will be applicable nationwide. Um, I am a Denver native, and I'm back now after um, about 15 years overseas, and something that my husband, who's also a Colorado native, and I noticed upon return was that the homeless population seemed to really increase. Now, I don't, I'm not an authority. I don't have the data. This was just driving around town going, wow, it, the, I'm seeing the these tent cities that we didn't used to have, where did this come from? And of course, every time we get a visitor or maybe a new person who moves here and joins our church and they're traveling around Denver, they're asking the same thing. And frankly, I've never had a good answer. So I am wanted to invite my friend Ben Soy onto this podcast. Ben is entrenched in work in Denver, and I knew that he would have a good answer to some of these questions and be able to help just direct my thoughts, my actions, and maybe be enlightening to you who are listening as well. So I just want to uh, say thank you, Ben, for joining me. Thanks for giving us your time and your expertise and your experience and just what you have observed. Um, It's so helpful to have somebody who's on the ground level in this situation be able to speak into it for us. So Ben, would you introduce yourself to this audience? Just tell us about who you are and your work and your context there in Denver. Yeah, Jen, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm Ben Soy. I'm, uh, I have, wear a couple hats. I work at Joshua Station, which is a part of Mile High Ministries. Joshua Station is a two-year transitional housing program for families that are formerly homeless. And so I work with our volunteers, our church partners, our community partners, Um, my basic role is helping people who identify as Christians really wrestle with what God has to say about our vulnerable neighbors, especially the homeless, Mm -hmm. and help them put that into practice, into action. I also part-time help lead worship uh, at a local church plant called Dwell Church, and I'm also a husband of Kate and uh, I have a rock band, and I do a, not- <laughs> a number of things. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what a life, Ben. You got a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, well, I there's I already have follow up questions. You know, like this this idea of transitional housing. So we'll come back to that. I'm just going to put that in my pocket. Uh, but that idea of transitional housing, and then the way you see your role. Like what I heard you say is you want to come alongside people who identify as Christians to be part of alleviating suffering in our community. What I didn't hear you say was, I'm here to save a population. So, so there were some nuances there that I'm like, okay, we've got to go back to that. But yeah. just to start us off at more of like a, a framework level, is it true that homelessness in Denver has increased over the last decade or so? Or is that not true? Are they just more visible or what's the story there? Yeah, that's a really good question that has uh, a complicated answer to it. So it depends on how you look at it. So yes, homelessness has increased as far as we can measure it. So typically, when we measure how many homeless folks do we have in our city, uh, what happens is a bunch of people go out on one night and see how many people are living out on the street or in shelters on one given night of the year. Oh, wow. Now, this is a really 
it's sort of the best metric that we have for uh, people who are totally unhoused, um, but it is a really inaccurate, incomplete way to measure uh, how many neighbors that, that we have are, that are homeless. And it also, so I describe homelessness in Denver and in other cities as both visible homelessness and invisible homelessness. And so this is a fairly okay way to measure visible homelessness, folks that are sleeping in cars, sleeping in tent camps, or in shelters like the Denver Rescue Mission or Catholic Charities or other places, right? But then there's a whole world of families that are in extended stay motels or teenagers who are couch surfing because their parents are abusive and they've uh, had to leave home, right? There's a whole world that we can't really measure uh, that we... um, have really no idea how many folks are out there. So if you just measure, we go out on one given night, how many folks are sleeping on the street? Yes, homelessness of that visible kind has increased about 2% every year for like the last 10 years. Oh, wow. 2% every year. So that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it is. But also Colorado's population has increased 14% okay. over the last yeah. <laughs> the, the last, the last 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So, so depending on what numbers you look at, it, Homeless, homeless folks have kept pace with the population growth that we're experiencing in Denver and in the front range. So it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. And um, there's not always a clear story or a clear thread. You know, when uh, I have a mentor who said that if you've met one homeless person, you've met one homeless person because mm. the stories, while there are similar threads, it's very unique. Mm. Right. And I could, and I want to be very clear. Like I just know families that live at Joshua station, mm-hmm. which is a particular kind of homelessness that affects families who are working on their sobriety, who are oh, oftentimes a mom that lives at Joshua station will have escaped some sort of an abusive situation, whether that's a a former partner or a family member or whatever. And this Joshua station is a facility for families with kids. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know if I can really speak into what it's like to be like a middle-aged homeless man, mm-hmm. um, which is the sort of, when we think of homeless folks, we typically think of the grizzled dude that's a little older side of the road with the cardboard sign. Yeah. What I've learned is that's just like the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. with families that struggle to afford housing in Denver, Colorado. Wow, man, you've already given us so much to think about in terms of visible homelessness and invisible homelessness. Um, And just all the uh, intricacies of it being a family and what it's like with kids. And and you even mentioned the teen that's couch surfing because of their parents. Um, This issue felt really complicated to me 10 minutes ago, and now it feels (laughs) way more complicated than it did back then. (laughs) That's what I do. I just muddy the water for everybody. You're raising more questions than you're answering, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. So let's talk a little bit about you've we've we've talked about homelessness, but it seems to me like part of that conversation needs to be. Um, and I'm sure there's a word for this, and you can correct me and and uh, steer the conversation that way. But like the risk of being homeless, like what do you call that? Like a I don't know housing scarcity or there's the risk factors that lead to it. Can we talk about that side, like pre-homelessness yeah. maybe? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, so we talk about it at Mile High Ministries and at Joshua Station. We talk about it in terms of we really work on three interrelated problems in Denver and the metro area. One is homelessness. The second is unaffordable housing. And the third is social isolation. Now, I think the first two are fairly intuitive. Like we get that that's a problem, but the social isolation that some folks might be scratching their head of why, right? And homelessness has uh, a lot of, I want to say myths Mm. surrounding, um, like, especially if you've never had a friend who has struggled to afford housing in Denver, um, I think. I, you know, I grew up in West Virginia and I had a super sort of like fairly um, sheltered childhood. Like West Virginia is like 8% minority. So I mostly knew white folks. West Virginia is working class, but I went to church with a lot of wealthy, middle income and poor folks, but it was mostly poor white folks. And West Virginia doesn't have a lot of visible homelessness. So I myself have um, sort of had a crash course in this over the last couple of years and have um, not always, you know, I, I just came into this work with a lot of wrong-headed or wrong-hearted ideas mm. that I myself have had to repent of, mm. um, put under the light of biblical teaching. Um, and one of the things that I think that I've had to repent of is this sort of belief that we should help folks that deserve help. Mm, Wow. Um, There's, I think, an image of a lot of us are cautious when we think about homelessness or maybe even how to help our homeless neighbors. There's, um, There's hesitancy to maybe give money or give some sort of tangible help because there's this sort of myth of like, they're going to, they're homeless because they choose to be, or they homeless because they're an addict yeah, or they're homeless because of their own poor choices. And let me be clear. We all sabotage our lives in different ways mm. and we all work against health and wholeness. Um, And, uh, so you're never going to find, uh, some sort of like mythical, totally innocent, poor person that's homeless out there that it's just, it's never been their fault ever. But the gospel, which is that God has loved me before the foundation of the earth has called me by name, knew me when I was in my mother's room saw all the ways that I have sabotaged my own life, all the ways that I lived in rebellion against him, all the ways that I worked against God's good way. So I was an enemy of God that um, God pursued, right? And if God treated us the way that we treat our poor and homeless neighbors, saying that we're only going to help them if we are sure that they deserve help, right? Um, we would all be screwed, man. (laughs) Like like there, but it's like, um, it's really hard to really wrestle with this because, um, we want to establish ourselves as folks that are maybe, uh, good people that act responsibly and we take credit for all of the things that we have. But remember, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Yeah. 
in all things are grace. And so anyways, that's like the first myth that I see about homelessness is like that we should only help people that deserve help or who are going to respond well to our help or maybe show some appreciation or we have some sort of metric of we give help, but then within X amount of time, you have to get your crap together and, uh, and act well. Right. And the gospel just takes away our right to discern between who deserves help and who doesn't deserve help. Um, you know, Jesus is very clear in the good Samaritan story of like, who is our neighbor? Well, it's everybody, even the hated enemy. Yeah. Um, and we're supposed to go. So that's, that's, that's the, I think one of the biggest hurdles that I've experienced with church people, especially church people that grow up in a sort of particularly maybe rugged individualistic sort of culture where, which is the same water that I grew up in. Mm. Right. But we, um, we think about ourselves as better or we've made better choices than the homeless person, which is just a kind of, even if that's quantifiably true, that's kind of a messed up way to view other other people. Yeah. 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 Oh man. I hope that, um, yeah, I think I feel like this might be an episode people need to listen to more than once. I, I'm going to go back and be listening to it more more than once because you've you've really rocked some um, strong idols that we've probably placed in our lives, whether we know it or not. But just that idea of if I'm going to help somebody, they should be deserving, and not only that, but they should respond. Yeah, we don't want to um, put ourselves out there and give of ourselves and not see it be used in the way that we think it should be used. Um, but you blow that up with the gospel. You're absolutely right. You blow that thinking up. Who are we to, um, to place that standard on another image bearer when, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I really appreciate that perspective. Um, so if people have not done something to deserve homelessness, (laughs) if you, if what you're saying is, uh, we've all sabotaged our lives, we all deserve homelessness in one sense or the other. Right. Um, if it's not, you know, somebody who's really just set out on a path to be a rebel and to, uh, be an addict or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just insert here. I've definitely heard in Colorado that perspective a lot because of legalized marijuana and the other things that that leads to on the drug scene in Denver is that there is a large population that chooses homelessness because they want to choose, um, drugs over, you know, normal. And I don't know, maybe that's true. I don't know how true that is, or if that's just a crazy myth, but I'm just saying you hear that narrative mm. a lot. Um, but I also hear you saying there's also unaffordable housing and there's social isolation. Mm. Um, so can you unpack those, you know, speak to just some of that a little bit more isolation that that what we can afford. And then also if you, if you have any, I don't know, anything to add to that, um, myth that we perpetuate in Denver specifically surrounding drug use, that would be enlightening, I think. Well, so the numbers, um, of the folks, so, so when we go out on one night and say, how many folks are homeless tonight? And then when we ask questions, or we do surveys of uh, nonprofits that do social service programs. Um, we find that in uh, Denver, only 28% of homeless folks struggle with addiction to drugs or alcohol. So only less than 30%. Wow. I'm like, so, my mouth is open right now because I feel like, 
what we think is it's like a hundred percent or something. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, I guess I'm living under a rock or something. So, but yeah. 28% seems low compared to what I thought. Right. Right. And my based upon relationship. So Joshua station is a drug and alcohol free facility. So everybody that lives at Joshua station has to be working on their sobriety. And so being in relationship with families that are uh, working to uh, be sober from drug or alcohol abuse, um, what I have anecdotally heard, and this is a sort of a gut level theory, is that drug and alcohol use may actually be more of a symptom of a deeper problem than a cause of homelessness. Mm. So it may be a symptom of homelessness not a cause. Mm. Now this is radical. This is not backed up by numbers. This is only just my own, like based upon uh, stories that of folks that I meet is that um, really the underlying cause was broken social connections. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I, we, well, last year we, we both lost our jobs mm. and uh, in the middle of the pandemic and it was about four months of being unemployed And during that season, um, two separate people that we loved and loved us paid for our rent. And during that, uh, during that season, folks showed up deeply for us, church friends, former work friends, folks that we just knew from the city. Mm -hmm. And we tallied it up at the end of, of, uh, of our unemployment. And it was about $10,000 that people showed up with between like King Supers gift cards and paying for rent and et cetera. Amazing. And so, like, you know, praise God for the generosity of God's people, um, right? But we, I, we tallied up how many people would have to disappear from the face of the earth in order for us to be homeless, and it was about 100, 100 different families. Yeah. So we have the great joy and the great privilege to be so relationally connected yeah. in Denver, Colorado. There are people that love us, that, will ride, that are ride-or-die friends, right? Not everybody has that. And especially if you are, let's say you are working on your sobriety and your social circles are other folks that use and you're, uh, you're working on your sobriety, you're all of a sudden you're saying no to your whole social circle. Wow. So you're isolated there. Or let's say you come from, um, you know, what we used to call broken homes, right? Families that have just dissolved and fallen apart. Uh, you can't call mom or you can't call grandma. Right have a place to stay or let's say like the reality is is that the way that society is structured now is that poor folks typically only know poor folks middle-income folks only know Mm middle-income folks and wealthy folks only hang out with wealthy folks that's just the way that we kind of work society right now Mm -hmm. and so uh poverty is not just poverty of finances it's poverty of relationships and especially poverty of relationships with folks that's that can really intercede. And that's what I see is like in Acts 2 of like the early church of they held all things in common and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and breaking the bread into prayer. And if anybody had need, they would sell their possessions. Those who had wealth would sell their possessions to make sure that those who didn't were provided for. Right. And so the church is historically one of the only places that you see in the world of people who bridge different social strata and people who bridge uh, differences, but ethnically, economically, politically, whatever. 
we're sadly getting into a place where like the church is more segregated, especially politically, like liberals and conservatives don't go to church with each other. Poor people and wealthy people don't go to church together, white, black, and Brown Mm -hmm. and uh, people don't go to church together. Right. And so one of the, um, one of the problems that I see is that like, you just ran out of friends that you could call on for help. Yeah. And I think it was my experience of actually needing help last year and seeing people really, because I had historically thought about myself, oh, I'm a helper. I'm somebody who provides help. But really, God flipped that where it was like, no, you need help mm. from time to time, too. Wow. So that's the social isolation part. And social isolation affects not only the poor and the very poor, but it also affects everybody in Denver. Denver is statistically one of the loneliest cities in the country. I think we... Uh, this was a pre-COVID poll said we were number three behind DC and Vegas. Yeah, and I think we I get why that. DC, mm-hmm. yeah, DC and Vegas, we get why they're lonely cities, but Denver is like for the transplant, especially is a lonely place because you come out here to find an adventurous sort of like reinvention of yourself. Yeah. You come out here to be in the mountains. And then what you find is high rents and, uh, When you come out, typically, if you're not especially a spiritual person, you don't connect to a a community like a church. Where do you find friends? Well, it's either through work or through hobbies. Like you find climbing gym friends and hiking friends that you meet on Facebook or something, right? And it's really difficult to pivot when you're in a time of trouble. It's really difficult to pivot to real serious conversations with people that you're only used to working with or having fun with, right? And so we, it's not just the poor that if that social isolation affects, it's all of us. And so the solution is the same. It's like bridging social networks, coming together, building actual community across differences, mm. creating space for people uh, and casting a vision for friendship. That's not just what have you done for me lately, mm. but like I'm going to show up to sacrifice for you because that's how friendship works. Yeah. And then so the other piece that uh, we talk about uh, is – unaffordable housing. And that's just, I think all of us have felt that maybe if you own a home, the way you feel that is your property taxes <laughs> going up. But for those of us that rent, Kate and I have lived in Denver for 10 years and we've rented the whole time because homeownership has felt un, um, unachievable for us mm-hmm. based upon our income level and the sort of neighborhoods that we've lived in. So anecdotally, we moved to Capitol Hill, central Denver, you know, young, urban, hipster Denver. Yeah. And uh, we rented a studio apartment for $600 per month when we moved out here in 2011. Uh-huh. That same apartment with no work having been done on it, no improvements in it, is now over $2,000 per month. Oh, my gosh. I wasn't thinking 2000 I was thinking well over 1000 but I was not expecting yeah, to say 2000 The average two-bedroom apartment in Denver is about 1600 per month. Wow. And uh, so rent has gone up significantly, and wages, especially uh, for low-income earners, wages have been incredibly stagnant. Hmm. So wages have not kept up with housing costs. So now what we find is that families who maybe were just like, they weren't wealthy, but they were just sort of going paycheck to paycheck. They're now paying well over 50% of their monthly income to housing. And families are doubling up, tripling up in homes as well. Uh, Some one of the ladies that I know from Joshua Station, she lived with four generations in one household. 
of a family in a three bedroom, there was something like eight people wow. living there. Wow. Um, and then that's, there's the whole world of couch surfing too, where like I, um, and I, you know, after college, I was in, in a sort of uh, difficult personal time and I spent some time just staying with friends and, you know, I spun it as like, this is kind of an adventurous time for me, <laughs> but like when you're couch surfing, you're sort of at the, the pleasure or the displeasure of your host. Yeah. And as soon as you become an inconvenience to your host, you're, you're essentially kicked to the curb. Right. right? And so it's just very fragile for a lot of families in Denver where a lot of folks that we know are just like, they feel like they're right on the edge of, of not being able to afford a place to stay or trying to scrape money for a motel room. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This has been really helpful, Ben. Thanks for um, painting that picture for us. Um, They definitely feel like just that sense of privilege that we have being born into the families that we're born into, you know, you're born into that, social structure. You're born mm-hmm. into a family that may or may not be supportive of you. Right. And, you, yeah. and as you said, you and your wife counted well over a hundred families that you could count on if you, if, and when you needed help. And I think that's true for probably everybody listening to this podcast, or at least the vast majority. It's certainly true for me. You know, like I, my family is probably not ever going to face homelessness because I could call on other people or even carlessness, you know, like I, I'm going to always probably be able by virtue of the fact of the place and time I was born no mm-hmm. effort of my own there are um over a hundred if not more you know people I could call on for help with those things and we are so quick I think in just our American worldview our perspective to think that we have what we have because we earned it you know yeah. we worked hard and we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and it's just such a faulty way of thinking it's anti-gospel it's uh, prideful it, it rejects the goodness of God, as you said, Paul said, what do you have that I did not give you? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, so, and, and you, you know, I, I told you that before this interview, I really wanted to talk about how does the Bible impact how we see homelessness? And you've already done that so well as you've rehearsed the gospel to us mm-hmm. and just reminded us of, um, Jesus call to love every neighbor. And then you pointed us to Acts chapter two, which is so instructive as well in terms of believers of all kinds, sharing all that they have with one another. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, I love that picture in Acts chapter two and how many times have I quoted it and called on myself and others to obey it and to live, you know, accordingly that we would be so generous and share, but to be perfectly honest, it feels a little pie in the sky in this moment, you know, like unattainable, like, well, that was then Lord, you know, first century Rome, somehow you could do that, but you can't do that in 21st century Denver plus suburbs. Right. Um, I don't know if you have an answer to this or maybe we can try to unpack it together, but how do we get there? How do Mm. I get from being, so my listeners know I live in a suburb of Denver and Mm. it's predominantly white. It's predominantly wealthy. How do I get from, this context where the majority of the people in my spiritual family um, are of one demographic, Hmm. maybe a couple, but mostly we were one demographic. How do we take some steps to do what Acts chapter two says to do Hmm. what you've encouraged us to do? And that is create friendships with people from a different demographic, a different socioeconomic level, different lifestyle. 
How do we do that, Ben? <laughs> well, I, I want to answer that, but I want to, I want to address what you said about Acts 2 feels so far away and yeah. so pie in the sky and so unattainable. And I think we do that with pretty much everything that Jesus taught and mm. everything that the prophets. So Isaiah 58 says that true fasting looks like taking the homeless poor into your house. Mm. Who's the last person that you met that met a homeless person on the side of the street and literally said, why don't you come live with me? But that's what the prophets, God through the prophet Isaiah requires of God's people, right? Uh, Jesus says, give to everyone that asks of you. Mm. He doesn't say rationalize it or say, well, my favorite, uh, it's probably an apocryphal C.S. Lewis story, but he and his brother Warney are walking down the street and there's uh, somebody begging at the side of the road and um, C.S. Lewis gives him a five pound note and his brother Warney says, you know what he's going to do? He's just going to spend that on beer. And Lewis says, you know, funny enough, that's what I was going to spend it on. (laughs) (laughs) But like Jesus says, literally, full stop, give to everyone who asks of you. And we water that down immensely too. Yeah. There's a sense that like God's favor for us, because it's undeserved mercy and unmerited favor, right? Um, We sort of create these systems that sort of justify, we're like the, we're like the expert on the law in the Luke 10 Good Samaritan story saying, well, I want to justify myself. You say, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? I want to create a category of the people that are in the in group that I'm going to take care of and the people that in the out group that I don't give a fig about. Right. Mm. And so I, I really resonate with, cause we do that with pretty much all of the teachings of Jesus where we're like, when's the last time that I actually took Jesus seriously when he said, love your enemies, pray for those that curse you, do good to those that hate you. Mm. When's the last time that I uh, forgave somebody who didn't deserve Mm. it, right? So I think that there's, this is a manifestation, how we treat our homeless neighbors is a manifestation of a larger spiritual sickness that we experience in the American church, which is creating a system that essentially takes all the power of what Jesus um, uh, tells his people to actually like what sort of way and lifestyle that Jesus says to take on. Right. So I wanted to address that, but then to like, what do we do? Well, I go back to Luke 14 often. So Luke 14 is a very interesting passage where Jesus is invited to a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. And he sees that people are seating themselves at the best seats And then, as in now, typically people treated these parties as networking opportunities. We really value relationships with people that we can use in some way. And so uh, Jesus noticed at this dinner party at a very important Pharisee's house that folks that wanted to get a little bit closer to the host would sit themselves in the best seats so that they could chat up the host and they could do business together or they could cre- they could get some uh, social capital from being close and proximate to this important person, right? We do the same. Sure. Um, and Jesus says, when you get invited to a feast, don't sit yourself at the best seat in the table. You sit yourself at the worst seat so that the host can come to you and say, friend, move a little higher up. If you sit yourself at the best seat, the host will say, actually, somebody more important than you just showed up. So I'm going to ask you to move on down the line (laughs) and you will be humiliated in front of everybody. And so he says, 
those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he flips it and says to the listeners, when you are the host, don't invite your neighbor or your rich relative because they can repay you. He says, when you give a feast, when you give a dinner party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, people that cannot pay you back, and you'll be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. And I love this picture because it makes clear if we are to pursue anybody, if we're in a room of 100 people and life is not working out for 5% of them, five of them, then we are to go sit with the 5% that it's not working out for, right? We're supposed to pursue the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, who in first century Israel, where your status was based upon how hard you could work, and there was still the assumption that if you suffered in some way, that was God's judgment Mm -hmm, on you. mm -hmm. This is so radical. Yeah. And so, uh, Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the people that society says are not important. And I love this image because it's not um, when you meet somebody that's poor, write them a check or worse yet, write a check to an organization that is going to help that person. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. When you give a dinner party. Mm. So this is inherently a relational call. So Jesus is saying, Don't just love the poor from afar or love the idea of the poor, the idea of helping the poor. He says, invite them into your home, make them your friend, share your social circle, bridge your social capital to them. And um, this is, it's obviously, it's costly Mm -hmm. to do this sort of thing. And it is hard work and you need a lot of support. You need a lot of support from your church community, you need a lot of support uh, from a good, solid social structure and a good, solid family life. You need rhythms with the Lord of renewal and rest and restoration. But the requirement for the disciple of Jesus is higher than we want to believe that it is. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to say that in a way that's like legalism or like you won't be saved unless you do these things, because we know that our status with God is unshakable because of God's grace. But Jesus requires a hard road. And he also, um, anecdotally, my opportunities to share the gospel with my non-Christian neighbor who professes to love justice in a very progressive city like Denver, Colorado, is actually credentialed by a lifestyle of pouring yourself out for poor folks. Mm. And uh, the main critique that's being lobbed at the conservative evangelical church right now is that like the hypocrisy of you don't actually care about people and you just care about yourself. And so if we're the fruit, I think, of a lifestyle of loving and relationally caring for and being in mutual, beautiful relationships with folks that are struggling, um, is that people take you seriously when you talk about God's goodness and God's grace for them, for them and for you. Mm-hmm. You are preaching us a sermon, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, here's what you do is actually you obey the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but you're right. We do make things more complicated and, um, 
And what's helpful for those of us who are maybe sort of on the outside looking in is there are organizations doing good work that we can partner with, that we can start to serve with. Like we don't have to go, we don't have to reinvent the wheel as an individual who might feel, um, you know, some movement of the spirit, even just while listening, like, yes, this resonates with my soul. I, I, I want to pour myself out. We can come alongside Mile High Ministries or Joshua Station or, you know, um, Safe Families is something that our church has gotten more involved in. And um, there's other ways to do it. So we, I think sometimes we feel just so overwhelmed and paralyzed. Like, I don't know where to start, so I'm just not going to. I'm just going to send the check and call it a day, which, of course, the checks are needed. Like, keep sending the checks. But um, also, to, to your point of the relational involvement that is called for by Jesus, we can do that through some wonderful organization. They can help us. They can teach us. They can show us how to take this, these steps. Um, yeah. And of course, anybody in the local area would point them to mile high ministries and point them to Joshua station. Cause you guys have some great opportunities that our church has been able to take advantage of, but um, I'm yeah, glad that you're re- there. Re- Redemption has been such a strong partner <laughs> for the last few years. That's really kind of you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, showing up with the work that needs to get done and, um, you've been so kind hearted and, and, you know, this is, this is, a this is a, a road of learning and unlearning and taking on the way of Jesus. You know, we want the, like, we want the life of Jesus and we want the truth of Jesus. We want to value good theology and we want eternal life and abundant life now, mm. but very rarely do we actually take on the way of Jesus, which is often self-emptying love, right. Yeah. Which is the, the conduit to get there. Yeah. And so I have just, um, you teed it up real nice for me. <laughs> so yeah, you can volunteer at Joshua station. You can volunteer at open door ministry. Yeah. You can volunteer at any of the beautiful, uh, Bible centered, gospel centered, faith-based organizations that are doing work in the city, uh, to love folks. And, you know, the best thing that you can do is enter in as a learner, uh, and, uh, be shaped by the work. And then, you know, there's, uh, I don't think we're in an age where, uh, folks as Christians will take us seriously with a sort of one and done conversation anymore, mm. especially in a city like Denver. Good. And so we're, if we're, if we want to see folks come to saving faith and we want to see disciples made, and we want to see families work their way out of poverty and systemic brokenness, then it's a long haul commitment. It's not like a we're going to show up with some hot dogs and check our box, right? Now we do need youth groups and uh, ch- church small groups and folks to actually show up with hot dogs. But my hope is that, that becomes a transformative experience. Yes, it's something that you're shaped by, and you come in with the expectation of like this is a part of the tapestry of all the ways that God is calling me to love and serve and be in relationship with poor folks. And, you know, even in the most high achieving, well-funded schools, there are families that are on free and reduced lunch. Um, Even in our churches, which we feel like are so suburban, so white, so upper income, there are families that struggle that show up uh, to a Sunday morning worship service or are in our small groups or Bible studies. Yeah, so you, you don't have to search far 
effort to find somebody who is struggling that you can love and care for and attach yourself to as a steadfast friend. That is so true. There is a local ministry called Southeast Christian Outreach here in Parker, and they have been really eye-opening for us as a community as well as the the risk for um, the homelessness that we see here just in Parker, mm-hmm. which you drive around, you don't think that's true, but it absolutely is. Um, well, this kind of brings us full circle to um, what you said at the beginning, which I loved how you set up what you do, and that is that you come alongside Christ followers and help them um, to see to see others and to pour themselves out for others and to just connect various parts of the body of Christ and connect people to their community. Um, and I really appreciate that about you, Ben, and about your ministry and organization. So let me end with one last question that um, – is something that you actually mentioned to me at the and campaign launch of Denver. Let's plug that really quick. And campaign. Yeah. Check Shout out and campaign. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that launched this past weekend. You said this to me and I would love for you to just maybe take one minute to unpack it before we sign off. You said, I, there's a tendency for Christians in our context, you know, Western American Christians, wealthy, often white to, um, respond to a problem individually. What can I give? What can I do? But there's an aversion to responding systemically or at a policy level. And that really stuck with me. I've been chewing on it ever since. Can you say that to the listener who's like, this is the first time like I was on Saturday that they've heard somebody say that. What did you mean by that, Ben? And um, how can we maybe lean into our own shortcoming there a little bit? Well, it's a slow process of just realizing how much are we formed by our culture and how much are we formed by the historic gospel. And uh, you look, we talked about Acts 2, you look at Acts 2, and that doesn't seem like a group of people who are out for themselves primarily or who had a narrative of, well, I earned this money or look at me, I'm being generous. There was a if all that we have, we received from God, then there's some inherent social responsibility to that. And this goes back to like the gleaning laws in the Old Testament, which is like, don't harvest your land all the way up to the corners, leave it for the widow, the orphan, the stranger and the poor, right? So God's way has always been one that acknowledged individuals, saw individuals and acknowledged individual responsibility, but also acknowledged the fact that we are interwoven, our destinies are together, right? There's no thriving that can happen for me that if my brother is suffering, uh, that, you know, my thriving pales in comparison to the suffering that my brother is going through, right? And, you know, the reality is, is that for for, uh, folks that live in, um, a lot of our cities and in a lot of our churches and we're in the West, which is cowboy culture. Right. And yeah. so we are rugged individuals. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we know what's right for ourselves and nobody else can tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And we think about like, um, when we come across systemic problems, we think, well, what can I do about that? And that's a great part of obedience, but it's not complete obedience. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that if groups of people caused these problems and started these systems and perpetuated these systems, then groups of people are required to solve them, right? And if there are, you know, we think about, um, uh, I'm pro-life. And so uh, we think about legislating morality as pro-life conservatives. We think we should make abortion illegal. 
And, uh, but then when we're like, we think about any other problem that exists in the world, we're like, well, we shouldn't legislate morality. Mm. Right. Mm. And progressives do the same thing, but they flip it. Right. Like we're comfortable with legislating our own pet projects in a local or statewide or national stage, but we just, um, we, uh, we get uncomfortable when it comes to thinking about maybe government as a solution, especially if we've been formed by individualism or maybe the predominant political narrative of, of the families that we grew up in yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So this is, this is like tip of the iceberg. So, you gave me one minute. I took way too long, no, but, that's fine. but the, the, the reality is, is that we, um, we have to be obedient to a both end, mm-hmm. which is I can do something about it, but my own ability to affect change on a large scale is actually fairly limited. Yeah. And the reality is, is that we're churches of hundreds and we're a part of church networks of thousands and tens of thousands. And if there's something non-controversial, like what can we do to actually systemically solve uh, homelessness in our city? Like, we should be able to, that shouldn't be like a, a really controversial thing. Right. Like we can leverage our political power for good for that and leverage our personal bank accounts. And uh, it's, it's, it's not an either or like, yeah. it's either I individually respond to it or I collectively respond to it. It's the both and, yeah. right? That's so good. And we do live in a context and a time where both and is just not an option. It feels like it, it feels like, one polar extreme or the other is very loud and um, persuasive, and to be to dip at your toe in the waters of the other side at all is a you know a terrible crime. So I appreciate that nuance. It's both and it's individual and it's systemic, and the um, problems are both and the solutions are both, and that's honestly a biblical ethic. We see that in the Word of God. He has made us to be communal people but to have unity in diversity, to be individually responsible as well as corporately responsible. So you are just preaching from the word. And yet um, it's hard for us to, in our Western context, embrace that systemic uh, piece of of the solution. So I appreciate you pushing into that. And um, I look forward to really chewing on that more myself and um, as God would allow to put that into action as well. All right. Well, we are done with this conversation, but I feel like I would love to have so many more. So Ben, maybe sometime you're going to have to come back on all things because I feel like there's a lot more we could talk about. I would love it. That would make me so happy. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experience. This was really enlightening. And to all of you out there, thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus.